So just to set up uh, for the meditation, uh, the world or the life that you just came from, uh, based on the six senses, um, you have contact with objects. And based on uh, the three kinds of feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling, uh, the mind explores objects. This is uh, 18 kinds of mental exploration. Uh, or you could say uh, one becomes preoccupied with objects. So, uh, I'm telling you this is what you have to do in order to live in society. You have to take care of things and uh, take an interest in objects and investigate them to, um, um, you know, find out for sure about the uh, qualities and characteristics that make them either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral to us, and then uh, try to decide what to do from there. Uh, but this whole package is the opposite of meditation. When we come into this space, we want to emerge from that preoccupation. Uh, and in particular, we want to emerge from the situation that the mind is continuously feeding itself the kind of contact that feeds a repetition or an increase of the kinds of feeling, uh, but instead move towards the state where each contact is allowed to have its natural arc. Each contact has its beginning, its existence, and its ending. And the feeling also has its beginning, its existence, and its ending. It doesn't need to be proliferated. We don't need to be preoccupied. Uh, so with, with that, um, having set up that expectation, we can then come to our meditation posture and um, set up for meditation period. We can come back to the here and now, uh, putting aside all of our plans for the future, uh, worries about the past, uh, thoughts about things at home or away from here, just experiencing what's in this room.
one might be aware of the sound. One may be aware of the tactile touching of the body on the cushion, the feet on the ground, the hands on the lap, the touch of the clothing on the body. be aware of the sitting posture. And aware of the body itself.
of arms, moving attention down over the parts of the body. of this body just as it is in the moment, as it actually is. Thinking this body is not me, not mine, and not myself.
noticing whatever is earthy in this body, what's hard and solid, the teeth, the bones, the flesh, all the solid parts. Just seeing them as earth element, not personal anymore, just the earthiness of it. Noticing anything in the body that's wet, the saliva, the blood, the sweat, the urine. It's just the water element, just the wetness of it, wetness inside the body is not any different than the wetness outside. Just water element.
and noticing the heat inside the body as the fire element, especially the heat of digestion. The heat of the body process is gradually uh, decomposing and transforming the elements into other elements. The heat that consumes it's only the heat element, the fire element not something personal. Aware of the air element in the motion of the breath. All the subtle motions in the body 
are just part of air element. Not personal. motion. Just focusing on the elements, ignoring everything else. It may seem that there's a space quality. We just experience the earth, water, fire, and air as if they were surrounded by empty space. Thank you. 
as long as the mind just stays on these elements up to the space element we may experience being very equanimous very cool it's a kind of a bright equanimity that sees everything but stays and remains very still just watching the appearance of these elements as they arise up into our awareness And with this bright, strong equanimity, one can circle back again to feeling. Noticing how each contact at any sense gate brings up a feeling. And the feeling arises and ceases with the contact. With the contact, the feeling arises. When the mind moves away to something else, the contact stops, the feeling stops. Noticing how feeling arise and stop.
Uh, friends, with this guided meditation, I tried to uh, take you through the first section of the Dhatavibhanga Sutta. Did some of you recognize that? No? Yeah, this one did. <laughs> We've been uh, uh, working with this uh, sutta uh, together as a community for a few weeks now. Uh, we had a, a small uh, seven-day uh, community retreat um, uh, developing uh, this sutta as a, as a theme to practice together. And it's been um, a subject that I've been uh, speaking about uh, regularly as I try to um, kind of develop my, my personal take on this uh, particular teaching. Uh, I'll give people time to uh, uh, do a little stretch now. Uh, Dhatu Vibhanga is a very uh, beautiful uh, sutta in the middle-length discourses. It's called the Exposition on the Elements, number 140. It's a very deep meditation uh, sutta that I have believed uh, for a long time is really uh, the complete outline for a really nice meditation retreat. So you could take that one sutta and take it paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, and either cover the whole thing in 30 minutes, as we're doing now, or else you could spend a week, or you could spend a month, or three months, or six months, just uh, developing all of the potential for practice, uh, which is in this one uh, sutta. Uh, actually, there's a lot of um, uh, ways that um, the suttas, if you think that it's like a discursive essay, it doesn't sometimes make sense why is the thing given in the, in the sequence that they're given? Why is it laid out that way? Why is it important to go through this list? Why is it important to have these repetitions and so on like that? Uh, but if you take uh, the sutta and think, oh, this is a guided meditation, and just let each sentence come in, sink into the heart, contemplate, try to work with it, try to um, like follow along experientially and go as far as we can to get from A to Z or from uh, as far as we're able to with, with what uh, the, the Buddha is, is uh, pointing out, uh, then uh, that's a really um, a beautiful way to um, experience um, the teachings in the early suttas that are given in the um, uh, Nikayas, like the Majjhima Nikayas, the Middle Length Discourses, the Diga Nikayas, the Long Discourses, and so on like that. Uh, uh, the exposition in the Elements has a beautiful framing story. Uh, the Buddha is all by himself uh, with a uh, He's uh, wandering, he wanders to the town of Rajagaha and uh, with no companions, not even Ananda, nobody's with him. Uh, he goes to the potter in the village, in the city, and asks if he could spend the night in the potter's shed. 
uh, which would be typical to give hospitality to travelers. And the Padre says, oh, well, there's already somebody in that shed. It's occupied, but perhaps they'll let you stay with them. And uh, the person in the shed is a, a recluse uh, whose uh, name is the Pukasati. He's, uh, we hear from the commentary, uh, he was a king in Gantara, which is a very faraway place, who just uh, received a gift of the Anapanasati Sutta, the Sutta on the in and out breathing, uh, engraved on a gold plate. And just from seeing this bit of text, uh, this king uh, began to practice and was able to uh, develop meditation, to develop uh, samadhi, very deep samadhi, uh, maybe even um, some of the higher or um, immaterial uh, states of meditation, and became uh, convinced that the author of this sutta was the one to be his teacher. And so he, he gave up his kingdom and wandered down from um, Gandhara, which is up in northwest India, uh, in, uh, in the Pakistan area, and uh, was looking for the Buddha. But there in the Potter shed, the Buddha comes along and he doesn't realize who he's speaking to, um, doesn't recognize. His teacher is right there in front of him. He doesn't know it. Um, and so, uh, but, but they, they meditate through the night and the Buddha says, well, let me teach him. And, and so, This particular teaching, in part, is about uh, like um, Pukasati has got the talent for meditation, but he's sort of taken a wrong turn. Uh, He's just into um, samadhi, but he needs to be to get the point about insight. And so this uh, sutta is very much about insight. Uh, In the the brief uh, guided meditation I gave you, we can see we're taking, starting from, say, an ordinary conventional state of mind where the mind is um, experiencing what it experiences in terms of objects. So we're filled with objects. We've got, you know, here's my tea, here's this room, here's the heating system, here's the gas bill, here's the electricity, here's the other people around, and all of, all of them are seen as, as objects. And uh, as long as that's, as long as we are experiencing our world in that way, as this tendency to be uh, 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 preoccupied with objects and not be able to find the deeper truth. So then this uh, technique that's laid out with the elements meditation is designed to break the bond of this preoccupation with objects. And um, uh, so uh, uh, the first lesson is 
this uh, pointing out that uh, how we experience what we experience through the senses, through the six senses, the five physical senses plus the mind, and how uh, our, our sense contacts are keeping us with this stream of feeling. Uh, so uh, how we are experiencing things in daily life is uh, uh, very often being almost like swept away or swept along, pulled along by, by different kinds of feeling. Um, and then with the elements meditation, it's almost like the Buddha is saying, well, why don't we just take a rest from that? And instead of seeing an object, look at it in a much more abstracted way as the elemental characteristics that that object has. And the object is including internally this body, this physical body, the one that we occupy, as well as the external things. So instead of seeing a bell uh, to notice um, dominating a lot of hardness in this object, instead of seeing or tasting tea, uh, just thinking in terms of uh, the wetness. Uh, and with our own body where you know, there's so much um, identification and clinging and craving and suffering uh, connected with having to occupy a body, but not thinking of the body in terms of everything in which we are either conceited about the body or else disappointed about the body. Um, we suffer because the body is always seems to be going downhill. Um, and then, or else uh, uh, we suffer from a false um, uh, identification with the body that we occupy. But he said, don't look at it this way. Just look at it, analyze it down into the elements and just spend the time looking, dwelling, staying with uh, this internal body in terms of the elements and seeing the element as being this, like I say, very impersonal. This hardness and this hardness is just hardness. So it's not, like this is not me. If they, you know, threw away the bell and put it in the trash or something, I wouldn't be, I mean, I'd be concerned, but I wouldn't be, like, really distraught. But if they put my head in the trash, then it would be different. But, but in this meditation, we're not thinking of it that way, in, in the personal way, just thinking of it in this abstract way in terms of elements. And that, you know, it gives us uh, like a resting place, a, a place to find some uh, stability. And then, uh, uh, furthermore, in a certain way, it's kind of a simplification that we've uh, taken uh, some of the attributes of our experience and just put them to the side. So the attribute, like it's green, the attribute, like it's beautiful, the attribute, like it's useful, the attribute, like it's um, um, not useful, all of those qualities and characteristics, we're not paying any attention to that. Just paying attention only to the element. 
And then uh, as we just only pay attention to this one aspect of it, then uh, usually they speak about the four great elements, which is earth, water, fire, and air. But in this sutta, he mentions uh, the space element. And the way the awareness of the space element can arise is that just as the way that you've um, set aside the attributes that make our experience to be like we're experiencing a lot of things, a lot of objects, instead we're simply experiencing these characteristics and the the characteristics in a way are surrounded by a sense of spaciousness because all all that we're ignoring becomes space. I thought of a metaphor for this. some years ago, I was when I was at the Bhavana Society, we remodeled a bungalow into the nuns' um, uh, dwelling. And uh, I was trying and trying and trying to figure out how to convert this bungalow into something that would have two bedrooms and a tea bar, a bathroom, and a meditation space. Uh, and the whole uh, plan just, it wouldn't work. It was... It was awkward, and this bungalow had a it had a front door and a back door, and I wanted to like reverse them. Well, in any case, I an architect came to help me, and she was looking at the sketches that I had, and she said, "Well, you don't really need a front door, so throw away the front door and throw away the front porch." And then the whole thing kind of came together and it became a nice, a nice dwelling. So it's like what we <coughs> throw away is what creates the, the possibilities for something different to arise. And so when we uh, uh, throw away the concern or the preoccupation with objects, then the awareness of the elements is able to arise. When we actually throw away the elements, then space is able to arise. And by that time, we're starting to get away from all of that uh, contact which is triggering all of the uh, feeling reactions and we can discover uh, this uh, equanimity, that's what he says, but after developing the meditation on space then arises this equanimity, purified and bright, and the mind becomes very malleable and you can do with it anything you want to. Um, At that point uh, the Blessed One was uh, gave Pukasati this kind of a correction. He said, well, you could uh, move your meditation to the immaterial attainments and go to the realm of boundless space, boundless consciousness of uh, neither perception nor non-perception and so on like that. And you could stay 
if you were to die uh, in that meditation, you could go to a corresponding realm of existence and stay in that realm of existence for a long time, uh, which is explained in the commentary as being like 64,000 eons or 84,000 eons in the realm of boundless consciousness. Uh, but then at the end of that period, you could be um, dropped down into um, uh, this worldly existence and you still have to face suffering and samsara. Um, and so basically the counseling is that um, perhaps the immaterial attainments is not the point because that's not the best place to develop insight. Actually the uh, four jhanas, right mindfulness, right effort, right mindfulness and the four jhanas are what's given as the, the strongest and best place for um, developing insight and the, the um, immaterial attainments is not included by the Buddha within his system as being um, uh, supportive to insight. And so then with, with that, that bright equanimity that arises from getting um, just a, some distance away from the stimulation of liking and disliking and preoccupation with objects and so forth, then you use that equanimity to come around again and evaluate or see again, experience again, how feeling arises connected to contact. And now at this point, we're not so much uh, concerned about like the contact that's happening in our social world or our business problems or worries or those, those kind of strong things, but uh, perhaps uh, experiencing the, the Vedana that's arising just within the meditation cushion. So you might find that the mind is settled down and you're able to stay on your breath or stay on your object of meditation for a while. And that's like really great. I mean, that's it's got a real strong, wonderful feeling as the mind is calmed down and able to settle and stay within the meditation. Or else you could find that the hindrances are arising and the mind is not able to stay within the meditation and that's going to be unpleasant. So that's exactly, that's the place to explore Vedana is not thinking about the problems at home, but explore Vedana just within the meditation practice. And in that case, he's pointing to the impermanence of the, the Vedana of the feeling and how when, um, when the consciousness is connected with that sense gate which is producing that feeling, then that feeling exists. When it separates, the feeling doesn't exist anymore. So if my knee hurts or my back hurts and my attention is focused on that so that there's a contact, like physical contact with the nervous system is happening and also the mind is present for that experience is with that contact, the feeling is happening. 
just, he says, like two uh, fire sticks rubbing together. As long as they rub together, they make heat, but when they come apart, the heat stops. So when the mind leaves that domain and thinks about lunch, then that feeling doesn't exist anymore. It's gone, completely gone. Uh, and so then uh, to uh, spend um, a long time just contemplating the arising and cessation, arising and cessation of the, of, of the, the Vedana based on consciousness. So this is like an awareness with the mind element. That's consciousness is, is, is what cognizes. So, so um, and then eventually the summation of that is um, when we see how each Vedana is absolutely finished when the contact stops and then the last Vedana at the end of one's life when that contact stops and it's finishing it's cooled it's done right there and this is Nibbana this is the cooling down that the mind allows the Vedana to come to its end without reaching out for anything else. Uh, and now just picture the monk, uh, Pukasati, who was looking around for his teacher, and this person comes in and he doesn't know who it is, and they start teaching. And I think just at this point, uh, Pukasati must have been thinking, oh my gosh, who is, it? Who is this that I'm speaking to? Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, everything that I just uh, told you is what the uh, Buddha uh, recommends as um, he, he puts out four resolutions. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates them as four foundations. That's very confusing. There are four aditanas. Uh, so four uh, resolutions or four determinations. Uh, the first determination is um, not, to, uh, not to neglect wisdom. So not to be heedless of wisdom. So uh, this developing the meditation and developing uh, focus on the, the insight and, and uh, awareness of um, impermanence and seeing the cessation of uh, the, the Vedanas, everything up to there, uh, pulling away from our preoccupation with objects and going all the way up to that, that last moment of, of cooling down, being finished, being done, it's over. That's all within... Um, there's a, a don't neglect insight. And uh, he says don't neglect wisdom. But I think, see, the trouble is that Pukasati was, that's where Pukasati took his wrong turn. He was going to be just blissing out in samadhi. And he was neglecting wisdom. And so that's why Buddha gave him that, that correction. Uh, the next uh, a few uh, points uh, there's three more um, 
determinations, uh, which are just the most powerful, um, to me, uh, guideline and protection for our practice. Uh, He says that uh, uh, one should uh, defend, uh, protect the truth. Uh, because um, uh, the characteristic of Nibbana, which we're striving for, is that Nibbana has an undeceptive character. And by implication, samsara, our ordinary experience, has a deceptive character. But the ordinary experience is where we live most of the time. And and this is why I believe that like the insight, if we get a glimpse, if we if we can see it like on a meditation retreat or or in a uh, because um, you know we're having a special moment or we, we're able to withdraw from the world enough to to um, uh, get out of the maelstrom of of um, reactivity and and um, and objects, and and then we we get we get a glimpse and we say, oh, this is what it would be to wake up, or maybe it is our awakening, but then we have to still go to off, go to the office or something, uh, or we still have to go back and and like do things that are habitual, and the the mind is so strongly habitual, uh, according to our previous patterns. Um, I worked at an office for a long time when I was, uh, uh, bef- uh, you know, I didn't enter monastic life until I was 50. So I worked from, you know, age 18 to age 50. And even even today, I've been in, I've been, uh, in monastic life for 13, 14 years, but I still, have this powerful thing at nine o'clock. I'm ready to sit down at a computer and start typing. <laughs> and at five o'clock, I said, "Okay, punch out." <laughs> <laughs> so we have these these strong mental habits, uh, and it is a th- it is possible to have, you know, like if you have. Um, a stage of awakening, if you have stream entry or a stream entry path or something like that, you you get a glimpse, you can see it, you really see something and it is transformative, but still it can slip and slide backwards because of the the habitual nature of the mind. And I believe it's for that reason that the Buddha said that the truth should be protected. Um, another way of thinking of it is uh, one of the insights that can happen along the way is having clarity about what is the path and what is not the path. Um, You know, they say the Buddha taught uh, the Four Noble Truths, but he didn't teach about how the world began and how the world is going to end and whether the Tathagata exists or doesn't exist after his uh, uh, physical death. And so those extraneous questions, so you, so, so being able to recognize that those questions are not part of the truth that I 
for you to focus on. So then you, you set up this kind of like this bright clarity about what's the mental world where I'm going to continue to develop. So that's protecting the truth. Um, uh, and then the next one is um, that one would uh, practice for relinquishment. Uh, a relinquishment, in, the, in this sutta, it's the word which is uh, chaga, uh, uh, which actually means uh, it's got a more usual meaning of generosity, like giving away. Giving, like someone who's practicing chaga, you talk about the very bountiful person who just gives and gives and gives and, and they don't stop and they don't make uh, distinctions and they don't just give to famous monks or just give to people they like, but they give to anybody who needs, they just give. And that person is considered like a monsoon instead of it being like a scattered shower. Uh, so so they, that's like, like highly praised. And so, but the kind of giving that's talked about here is um, the uh, giving up any grasping towards existence or non-existence. Giving up uh, uh, obviously the uh, like sensual desires and liking and disliking and, and all of those, those, uh, those mundane things. And uh, so that then uh, uh, without having uh, giving up uh, one's own sense of personal identity so then there's nothing to defend um, and nothing to be agitated about uh, because if there's not a self why should one be disturbed and then the last of the uh, resolutions is to uh, practice for peace. And um, there's a beautiful metaphor there that Bhikkhu Bodhi translates as the tides of conceiving. Uh, conceiving is um, very closely related to conceit. So, so you conceive of yourself as being a person who's trying to kind of like say I, I am somebody and uh, trying to you know establish a reputation and a position and all those other an identity uh, so the tides of when somebody has developed themselves and developed this this uh, relinquishment then the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over them they're completely at peace, they're called a sage at peace. So, uh, in a way, those last um, four points do uh, sort of like all come together as a result of the practice, like the, the bulk of the sutta is, is the specific, like the meditation practices that I was giving you before. And then the last part is is giving these four, which is it's almost kind of like four uh, insights or four kinds of mental transformation, uh, which all are 
so interconnected and interrelated to each other. It's like they don't come separately in a sequence, but they all seem to arise uh, together. Could, could uh, you just repeat them one more time, just in summary? Yeah. Uh, so we don't neglect insight. That's doing the meditation practice. We uh, protect the truth. We uh, uh, cultivate relinquishment, and we practice for peace. Practice, practice for peace. Uh, at the moment, the one I love most is protecting the truth. And the reason I love it is that uh, it seems to me that there's a danger uh, for people who are spiritual seekers, as well as for people in general, to get into magical mystery tour um, ideas that are sort of fanciful and imaginative, but maybe not cutting to the bone, not cutting to the essence. And, or else, um, if not that, a lot of people who, um, uh, people spend a lot of time in a place I call La La Land, uh, you know, with just imagining different things that could happen there. And, and, and that's, that's also um, like a, a not really a, a safe place to be. Uh, it's like the place, the place that I want to wake up is right here. I don't think I'm going to wake up someplace up in the sky. Uh, and so the, the, like the truth for me is to be as authentic as I'm able to be in really noticing how it is at every moment of the day. What, you know, what's, what's happening, what's arising. Even if it's not beautiful or if it's not noble or if it's not seeming to be spiritual, it's like, okay, this is what it is. This is the reality I have. And I have to really uh, be, you know, fully awake for this reality, the one that I got on my plate today. Um, not um, being like um, spinning a dream world and then just like the Buddha was saying that, that people can be uh, preoccupied with objects, spinning a, not spinning a dream world and then being preoccupied in a dream world. As maybe uh, Pukasati was preoccupied in his dream world practicing meditation and he didn't notice that the teacher arrived because of preoccupation. See, so that's, so the, the um, I, I'm, I'm just, um, uh, 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 got this feeling that, yeah, we're going to wake up here. This is what it is. All the causes and conditions since beginningless eons of time have all conspired to bring each of you to exactly the point where you're at now. This, what you've got right now, right here, is the perfect manifestation of so many causes and conditions that came to, came to the, uh, the here and now, and then obviously continuing to flow on. And that's the space that's given to us uh, to do our work and to wake up. <laughs> I'll stop now. Um, 
it's been uh, uh, working with this um, particular sutta. It's a very big sutta, and I was kind of challenging myself. It's like, well, could I present this sutta within a one brief session? And so, so that's kind of what I was trying to do, and I, I hope that it's uh, meaningful for you, and I would welcome uh, some comments or questions. In the description in the sutta, he doesn't actually describe it differently. He describes like um, the water element as the things that are wet in the body, and the space element he describes as the spaces in the body. So, like inside the lungs or inside the mouth. Or it, it sounds like a description of particle physics. Uh, but it could be you know, in terms space. of the space inside the atoms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is how you know Tikkun Hanot used to always. Emphasized, I know there's space inside of me, and, yeah. and it's more like at the atomic level or the subatomic level. Mm -hmm. We know that the, the matter, you know, the particles, there's a lot of space yeah. within the. Yeah, within we're basically the, into space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but this space is also, uh, it sort of segues into these immaterial meditations, because. Uh, if you forget about everything else and just focus on space, you can go into the immaterial meditation. Very good. You know, the um, emotional reactivity is a lot uh, related to the sense of the self. One is much more likely to feel uh, 
an emotional reaction if the self is uh, impinged on in some kind of way. So that's the reason why one is, you're more likely to be triggered if it's your own head that's being thrown away in the garbage as opposed to somebody else's. Uh, and things that we just read about in the newspaper might not, they can arouse compassion, but sometimes they don't have the same emotional impact. So as a result of that, when we cultivate the elements meditation with the impersonal aspect of it as not being what we identify as, as oneself, that takes the mind away from the realm of emotional reactivity. Uh, so that would be one of the um, benefits of this kind of meditation. Uh, I really believe that uh, the ancient people, uh, I don't know what they did as far as uh, yoga type of, like physical yoga practices, uh, but I'm sure that they occupied their bodies in a more, uh, in a clear way. Uh, uh, they practiced a lot of walking. You know, the, the monks in the olden days uh, didn't uh, usually ride a carriage or ride a cart or um, ride in a vehicle, but they got around by walking. That was their means of transportation. So, and the Buddha walked for you know, thousands of miles, I mean, many, many, tens of thousands of miles as, as he was doing his teaching. And, and I, I feel that there's something in, like, the rhythm of walking, that if you could just like walk for five or six hours and then sit in meditation, um, that the it's just the mind is a more of a natural way for the mind to be able to to settle because of because of the uh, exercise and the the simple sort of rhythm rhythmic aspect of walking helps to make the mind get like very sort of like smoothed out. Um, maybe you could get the same experience with dancing or, or some other kind of like a consistent um, uh, physical exercise. Uh, uh, but the, the combination of, of, of meditation with a physical practice for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Do others have uh, experience with using elements in, uh, within within their uh, meditation practice? Is that something that um, uh, that you've uh, been exposed to and that you've worked with? I'm just curious to know. Yeah, I came as taught taught the elements meditation. I think I came and taught the elements meditation. Maybe not that much. Mm -hmm. so. The Burmese. It's also very um, teachers. Pagan. You know, a lot of the uh, 
taking the stuff as earth, air, fire, water, and yeah. identifying with the elements. Yeah. It was very interesting because it was a, like you said, a way of getting rid of the attachment and the conceptualizing, and, yeah. you know, and then just focusing on the equanimity and things. Something else that you spoke about that struck me or reminded me from some of my own past experiences with the suttas is how they're written, the repetition, and the way in which they can be um, experienced in a more experiential way. Even just by, when reading, just listening and the repetition mm -hmm. and how that, um, you know, that's an, an added layer to just, you know, say the meaning of the words themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's, you know, something uh, powerful in uh, the way that the teachings are, have been passed along. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's, you know, obviously it's related to their origin as oral teachings and the repetitive nature probably you know, was an aid to remembering. So, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. It's definitely, that was, that's been my experience also. Mm. Well, I wish that um, each one of you will find uh, one teaching or some teaching which is uh, something that's uh, fruitful for you, uh, something that you're able to work with that will be uh, productive, and that you may uh, think that even over a period of years that you would uh, continuously or repeatedly go back and go and work with the same teaching over and over again and see how, you know, whether it be the breath or the foundations of mindfulness or practice um, uh, the metabhavana or some other uh, of the um, uh, substantial, uh, especially substantial uh, suttas that are given, that you think of, you know, going back again and again, and taking um, a teaching that maybe at first it seems like gobbledygook, that you can't really understand what the point of this is, why, does, why is this part of the Dhamma, and then, you know, corners of it or parts of it may emerge and become meaningful, and then, you know, later on it's like it becomes more and more uh, significant and, and becomes something that's that is, is sort of like a habit of mind and a way of looking at looking at our life. It's it's a a really um, a wonderful way to practice, and something that we have in monastic life. There's a few of the core suttas that we uh, recite um, that come up, you know, if not every week, at least every other week. So so uh, some uh, suttas like the turning the wheel of dhamma or the um, 
suit on the, the um, uh, characteristics of um, uh, uh, non-self, uh, that uh, we will have read them at least 25 or 50 times a, a year and recited them out loud with all the repetitions. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, memorize them. And that just creates a way that, uh, you know, like gradually the, the impact can uh, emerge for us and be integrated, really integrated into our practice. So it's something that we, we come to know experientially and not, and not just intellectually. So with a thought, I think we can come to our closing. Uh, shall we recite the um, um, uh, closing recollection? The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teachings so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples, who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.